Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? I am so great. I, I'm feeling powerful, energized. Powerful and energized. Ready to rock That's and roll. Good. Let's do this. Probably not until you were around me and you got... Oh, yeah. It's instant. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're like okay. you're like a caffeine uh, little pill that I take before we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Enough of the little pill talk. I'm not ever happy with just how your day was. I want to know how... Have you had a good week since the last time we talked? I've had a great week. Yeah? Good. Yes. Yeah, so just kind of hanging out around the house. Helping out the daughter, you know, with mm-hmm. the, we're just waiting till she says yes to the dress, you know, and the wedding plans <laughs> uh-huh. and helping out the wife around the house. It's All right. A lot of fun. I, my wife is doing softball. So we went to, we found these batting cages right near us where we live. It's, it's an indoor place. It's really cool. So I go and it's my fun because I get to put the, the balls into the, the pitching machine and she hits them. And it's just like, it's like a kid in a candy shop. Now you keep them go. You keep the going straight, don't you? You don't. Never. Uh, I would never do that You don't that do to her. go high and tight, do you? <laughs> never would do that. <laughs> All right, good. Brush her back a little bit, <laughs> right. you know. Let her know who's boss. <laughs> That's right. No, I'm just kidding. It's the just pitch, kidding. The pitching machine is boss. <laughs> right. Have you ever, have you, have you, did you stand in the pitching machine at all? No, she offered to let me bat, but I'm like, I'm not ready for that. I, I got her a very nice a, a composite bat for her birthday, which mm. has a very precise break-in protocols and like the last thing i need jack is me to get in there and like crack that bat right. i would she'd probably crack it over my head so i'm like no thank you no it's okay i haven't been in a batting cage for years and years and years and um i'm always struck by how fast those balls oh, I know. it's unbelievable I, I was very quick i was a baseball manager way back when i was a freshman in high school and one time they let us come in and the the hardball this hardball the pitchers pitched to us slow and i couldn't even come close <laughs> like at, at 70 forget at 60 yeah. 50 go to like 40 miles an hour yeah. you probably still can't touch it yeah you know? so, i'm with you yep now let me ask you something have you ever had a broken microwave no, many times. <laughs> no, me? I, mean, I think the one in our back kitchen's about to die. So, <laughs> well, being on this earth for nearly five decades, I've run into this problem a time or two. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with your microwave when it breaks? You throw it out. And you get throw another it out. One. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, these things are just like magic boxes that heat things up. They are they nuclear? I don't know. Do they shoot radiation out of them? Who knows? At any rate, they seem awfully complicated. There's no obvious way to fix them. So we just throw them away and get new ones like you said. Right. Well, my microwave broke this week, and I decided that I was going to try to fix it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I started, okay. I started taking it apart, and it turns out that there's not some baby nuclear reactor in there. It's just a box of electronic parts like anything else. And eventually, I found a fuse. Oh. And I think that that fuse was burned out, and I think that was the problem. And I will be procuring that fuse today. Oh, good job. Good job. And I look forward to updating you next week on whether or not I got it, got it, <laughs> this thing running or not. And just as a 21st century husband and father, I feel like if I can fix a microwave, that's uh, what Andrew Tate would call a high value man. You're a 21st century renaissance man. Exactly. <laughs> Give me that screwdriver. I'll fix that thing. Although, seriously, you just probably save yourself, if you were going to get it repaired, 150 bucks or I, two, 300 to get a new one. So good on you. I'd like to know where you're getting your appliances repaired for 150 bucks. <laughs> well, it's only a microwave. <laughs> right. If it was a refrigerator, it would be like 800 <laughs> Now, I bet, John, you're asking yourself, Sure, Jack, that's interesting. But why am I telling you this story? Other why? than, well, if you listen closely, I was giving you some hints about today's subject. Oh. Did you catch them? It's a cooking show. No. <laughs> I talked about nuclear and radiation, baby reactor, and here's the here's the important one, fuse. Oh. Jeune. Fuse. I didn't say jeune. I just Excellent. Said 
It's like a game of Clue. Right, exactly. Now, while you're thinking about those clues, let's get to our housekeeping. First, our email address. Remember, email us. Tell us what you're thinking, how we can improve, what we should do more of at thepowerhour@heritage.org. Shoot me an email. I'm dying to hear what you think. Um, again, that email address is thepowerhour@heritage.org. Now, John, can you tell the folks where they can find us out there on the Internet? Of course. The Power Hour is under the Herd and Heritage podcast umbrella, where so many great podcasts are like this one. So just look at Herd at Heritage Power Hour or The Power Hour, and you'll find it. You can go to anywhere where you find Spotify, Apple, any place you get Ricochet, you get your podcast, and you can find us there. There you go. So hit that subscribe button so you don't have to yeah. search for us. And we'll share. Just, and share. Yes. Definitely share. We need to get our numbers up if we're ever going to get that Spotify contract. And get us a review, too. <laughs> yes. Only if it's a good one. <laughs> good reviews and lots of them. Now, I'm going to add something new to our housekeeping this, this okay. week. Okay, okay. I want to get questions from our audience for future guests. Now, not who our guests should be, but I'm going to tell people what our next subject is going to be. Oh. And then maybe we can get some questions. So I like it. I don't want to say who our guest is, but if you have any questions about global warming or global warming policies or anything to do with that kind of stuff, climate change, shoot them to me. I will ask them. And also let me know if, if, I can, if you don't want me to use your name, because what I'll do is I'll pose the question from, you know, yeah. Jimmy in Albuquerque right. wants to know this thing. Uh, it, does that count for me? Because I've got questions about that. I have a lot of questions. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Please do. Lots. John from D.C. asks. <laughs> Just say, I, my, my, my name is Johnny from Philly. Johnny from Philly. <laughs> I think I knew Johnny from Philly in high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we he all could did. could get you about anything you wanted. <laughs> we all did. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> anyway. John, did you figure out what we're talking about today? Uh, fusion. Fusion, that's right. Yeah. Well, as you know, we do talk about nuclear power a lot on this podcast. I'm sure we'll do that again, but that's not what we're doing today. You know we like cutting-edge energy technology. You know we like to talk about what role the government should play and what the private sector should do. And you know that we like to talk about regulation, how onerous, outdated, and misguided regulation can kill almost any energy source. And most importantly, we like smart folks who reject consensus thinking. Now, if that's what we're looking for, and I say it is, then I will submit to you, John, that we might have the absolute best person in the world with us today for this podcast. Wow. He has deep experience in the private sector. If you want to build a reactor, buy a nuclear company, figure out how to navigate that NRC regulatory bureaucracy, or introduce a completely new technology in the marketplace, you need to give this guy a call. He was a former presidential appointee to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a longtime Senate staffer, so he knows how the government side works. He's held too many positions in the private sector to name, and he's currently a partner with Pillsbury, Winthrop, Shaw, Pittman. He's involved with advanced nuclear, and most importantly for our conversation today, he's a leader in trying to bring fusion technology into the marketplace. And if I may, most important of all, at least to me, he is a longtime friend of mine, that I know I can always reach out to to get answers to whatever questions I have on any nuclear or any energy sort of related type issue. I present to our powerhouse audience, Mr. Jeffrey Merrifield. Jeff, welcome to the Power Hour. Jack, thank you very much, uh, John. Great to be here. I, I got to tell you, I've really been looking forward to being part of this effort. Um, I've had a chance to listen to a number of the podcasts. You've done a terrific job, and I, and I really want to um, you know, give you a lot of credit for that. I, I got to say up front, though, um, as a safety regulator, I, I got to go back to your microwave story. Okay. So you, you uh -oh. went into that microwave, you found the fuse that was broken. Good on you. Uh -huh. But remember, a fuse is there only when there is another malfunction and it keeps that device from having a problem. So you fixed the safety. You can fix the safety part. But you still have the underlying issue with the microwave, so you got to uh -huh. find that first before you burn down the house. All right, time to throw it in the trash, Jack. No, no, I'm not throwing it in the trash. I'm going to fix that fuse, and um, I will continue with my my electric um, uh, sensitizer thing, and I will follow that wire throughout until I see. That light not come on. Okay. Electric sensitizer. Okay. Yeah. Is that like a, f a phaser or something? I've, they, I've, they have names. <laughs> I have a bunch of tools 
I don't know how they work because no one ever taught me. I've learned everything through trial and error, and I'm going to become a microwave repairman. But I appreciate that is a good hint from an actual person who knows about these things. (laughs) Jack, if that doesn't work, do the old trick. Just take like a a, a nail and stick it in where the fuse was. That'll take care of your problem. (laughs) I kid, I kid. Yes, that's a great experience. Um, Now, Jeff, we're going to get into energy stuff, but first... How's your summer been? We're coming up to the end of summer. You know, I've had a, I've had a terrific summer. Uh, we have our office here in, in Washington is being renovated, so I got kicked out of my office for about eight weeks. So for much of the summer, I've been spending time at my boyhood home in New Hampshire, uh, nice. working remotely and living the clean life. So it's been terrific. Nice. I have um, never been up to that part of the, the country, and I really want to go. Holy cow. You, yeah. you absolutely have to do it. I yeah. mean- you know, if nothing else, you obviously work for an organization that is connected uh, very well in, in what's going on. You know, growing up in New Hampshire and being involved in, in the political campaigns, and I my first one was back, I, I hesitate to say how, how long ago it was, but it was it was back in the 70s. And it, people there are very much connected with what's going on. It's, it's a great place to be, and you can see it already uh, uh, building in, in the interest in, in the next, uh, next go-round. Yeah. Yeah, it's starting to heat up quick. You're it is. Even after this this first debate, you already see the pendulum sort of going in different directions, and it's it's interesting to watch. watch and, and, and by the way, beautiful state, most heavily forested state in the nation, and if you, if you get up there in October, absolutely gorgeous. Very good. Um, like, Jack, maybe uh, the first uh, power hour road trip yeah. to New Hampshire? That, that would be good. <laughs> I can, in, we your, can, in your RV? We can make it a, a power hour slash hunting trip. <laughs> like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about Pillsbury. What, is, what, what does your firm do? What do you do there? Well, you know, it's interesting. Our, our law firm, the Pillsbury part of it, dates back uh, to the 1800s. And one of the first things that we did was we helped incorporate Standard Oil of California, uh, which is now Chevron. So our roots in the energy industry go back very, very deeply. Uh, the role I have, I lead our energy section, and our focus has been on advanced nuclear and, and nuclear writ large. Um, we're the oldest and largest nuclear law practice in the world. We date back, you know, to the early days, not long after World War II, and we've been helping utilities, technologies, um, governments internationally in attempting to to successfully and safely deploy their nuclear technologies. More recently, I came to Pillsbury in, in 2015. My focus has been, has been on advanced nuclear, and that really incorporates the next generation of nuclear power plants. So some of them are smaller versions of the type of light water technologies that we have in the U.S. today. Um, others are, are more um, innovative technologies that came out of uh, various parts of the national labs, uh, either Oak Ridge typically or, or Idaho Falls. Uh, Idaho National Lab, and those include molten salt reactors, advanced gas reactors, uh, and others. More recently, I've also gotten involved with my team on fusion. And so there are a variety of companies out there right now that are developing fusion technologies. Uh, we established the, the, the uh, leading fusion practice for a large law firm. We've also been very involved in, in the deployment of hydrogen. So we really see ourselves as a, as a cutting-edge law practice to the, to the very uh, generous introduction you gave me and really focus on helping technology providers who want to bring those very exciting technologies to marketplace and do so in a way that will navigate that sometimes difficult regulatory uh, regimen. And you're, you are providing some leadership role for, fu- for fusion-oriented firms to try to Move the technology forward. Is that correct? Yeah, I do. So on the fusion side of the house, I I do a couple of things. We are the um, external um, legal advisors for regulatory matters associated with with the Fusion Industry Association. So we interact with the you know several dozen fusion developers who are out there. Um, We work very closely with Andrew Holland, who is the president and CEO of of FIA, and have been engaged. Uh, in a very significant way with the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission over the last several years. I know that's an area you want to get into later. Uh, so that's that's been part of what we've been doing. Now, I also have the other side. I, I think of myself as sort of left brain, right brain. Left is fusion, right is, is, is fission. Uh, I am also the chairman of the Advanced Reactor Task Force for the Nuclear Industry Council. So I've got involvement in both in both sides of that house. Speaking of, of that house... Um how do how do the two sides differentiate? More specifically, we've talked about fission on this podcast a number of times, so I feel like my audience has a um, a reasonable 
understanding of what of what fission is. We haven't talked fusion. Um, could you talk a little bit through from a technology standpoint, sort of at a at a top level, the difference between right. fission and fusion? Yeah, well, with, with fission and, and you know, fission technologies go back to World War II. It was it was some of the original technologies we used not only for the development of our weapons program, but ultimately the first nuclear power plants that were um, that were put in the water, the Nautilus, and ultimately a civilian program. And in that case, you're you're splitting the atom, right? You're you're basically releasing that level of energy uh, that ultimately um, does leave you with a fuel form that is long-lived, provides long-lived radioactive waste. But that technology, fission technology, has served us well as a country. Uh, we've deployed it in large measure since the early 1960s. Today, as, as your listeners probably recognize, it supplies about 20% of all the power in the United States. There are roughly 94 of those reactors that operate today. And from a carbon perspective, it is half of the carbon-free generation that we currently have in the United States. So that's a, it's a very important resource, operates 94% of the time, uh, has really provided the backbone for our electricity grid. And unlike other forms of clean energy, wind and solar, it can operate 24-7 and, and doesn't, isn't subject to variations in temperature, wind, uh, um, the sun shining, things of that nature. So it, so it is, a, is a very uh, solid, stable, safe form of energy in, in our nation. Fusion is really harnessing the power of the sun. And so in this case, rather than splitting those atoms apart, you're actually trying to get them to, to merge. And through that, creating uh, massive amounts of, of energy. The, the challenge with fusion and the reason why it has been so difficult to get to the point it is today is because it's a hard thing to do. Um, there are various ways in which can, you can do it. You can use lasers, uh, sometimes called internal fusion. You can use uh, what are called tokamaks, which basically, uh, if you can sort of conceptualize a donut, we're in the middle of that. You're trying to bring, you know, bring that plasma together to create that energy source. Uh, and there are a variety of other um, types of fusion energy out there. In fact, the diversity of different forms of fusion uh, today is much wider, I think, in some regard, than the advanced nuclear uh, counterparts. One of the, I think, one of the principal selling factors of fusion is that it does not create long-lived radioactive waste, high-level waste. Um, now, there is some uh, low-level radioactive waste that is it comes from the uh, you have a lot of neutrons associated with with a fusion device, and so that can that those neutrons can activate the walls of the of the various portions of the of the facility. Um, but again, that's something that you could you could deal with readily using uh, available decommissioning technologies and low level so, waste storage sites. So th th I wanted to ask that specifically: yeah. the low level waste associated with fusion would be on par with from a from a danger standpoint, for lack of a better word the low-level radiation you get from fission. Yeah, that, that's right. That's from right. A store, so, from an ability to deal with its standpoint. That's correct. You know, the steel, the concrete, the other metals that would be used for building a fusion machine, if activated with neutrons, would have characteristic contamination would be similar to other low-level radioactive waste. And, and you know, the nuclear gets a, a lot of criticism in many ways. We have done more recently a very good job in this country of decommissioning former nuclear power plants and former military facilities, have gotten those taken down safely, have not had adverse impacts to the workers, and those are uh, that material is appropriately and safely disposed at, at, at several sites around the United States. So, so by the, the private sector, I might add, by the private sector, <laughs> absolutely, no, yeah. absolutely, it's an. As you know, we've talked many times, a big issue for me is nuclear waste. And, um, of course, my uh, favorite critique of that whole system is that the government ruined it when it took it over in 1982. And people don't often don't recognize the very successful, uh, the successes the industry has had with low-level waste disposal that was continued to be done by the private sector. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and, and I think we could probably have a very fulsome <laughs> discussion on that topic. And, and and to your point, I think there are a variety of issues underway, both in terms of disposal of radioactive waste as well as um, you know recycling of that yeah. used nuclear fuel. 
uh, that's, that's, that's really being looked at right now by the private sector, in my view, is very, very exciting. But that's, I know, not yeah, the topic I, for today. I'm not trying to. I, I just couldn't help myself. No, no, no. And I understand. We will get back on board. But, you know, um, you can always issue me a subsequent invitation to come back and talk to that issue. <laughs> I would do a podcast solely on that issue if uh, the Heritage Foundation would allow me to do so. Um, but we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about that issue at a future date Great. for sure. Great. Um, you used a word in that description that's a technical word that I'm going to ask you to define a little bit further. Plasma. Mm-hmm. What is plasma and how does that relate to... Fusion. Well, I, I'm always a little. Uh, I always have to advertise up front that my background, uh, undergraduate background, is in science, um, political science. So right. I am not. I, I will readily admit I am not the not the, the 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 highest of the of the achievers in terms of the, the scientific issues. Basically, the the plasma is the uh, area on which you're, you're really bringing together that fusion technology. So it's mm-hmm. a creation of that. Very, very high temperature, 100 million degree uh, material that's really going to serve as the core of the energy that ultimately mm-hmm. you're going to capture um, from the device. And trying to get uh, those together in that form is very difficult. And the plasma is what occurs or is fuels, if that's the right word, in the tokamak type reactors. Is that right? Not well, you're, the what you're laser using, ones? What you're using is, you know... Um, Typically, the fuel that's used to get there, and there are different ways that different technologies use. Um, typically, it's deuterium or helium, which are or, which are atoms of, of hydrogen. Those are the fuel sources. The um, the confinement that's used in the particular type of uh, fusion technology is really intended to bring that together and mm-hmm. create that plasma. Okay, very good. Now, one of the things that is great about that I've argued regarding nuclear for years is that it's not just good for producing electricity, but it's a energy source that can be applied in any number of ways to process heat for industrial processes, the desalinization or whatever. Does fusion fall into that category too? Is it a, a, a diverse energy source? Can we use it for lots of different things? Sure. I mean, what you're, what you're doing is you're creating uh, two things that are intertwined, energy and, and heat. Um, I think a lot of people, quite naturally, when they think of fusion, think of the energy electricity capabilities that will be available. One of the things I think is important about fusion is when it is deployed, and I think it is a matter of when, not if, it can be, um, depending upon the technology developed, can be relatively compact. and, And you can put them in locations that you would not otherwise put other forms of energy generation. So the, the ability to bring that and deploy it in a way that is really useful for utilities or other folks that need energy um, is important. I, I would note, for example, um, a lot of attention given recently to Microsoft. Microsoft is either the one of the largest or, or perhaps the largest consumer of electricity in the country, given the sheer number of data farms that they have out there. Uh, they have recently made an agreement with uh, Helion where they want to be you know, down the road an off-taker. Uh, of, of that energy source. I, I, I suspect they are not the, the last one that will be doing that. And so I think that there will be different um, energy-consuming technologies, whether it's data farms, whether it's potential large uh, industrial users, uh, manufacturers. You know, they're going to look to potentially switching to fusion to provide that, that non-carbon resource and, and, and be able to locate it, co-locate it with, with the facilities that they have spread around the United States. Now, to your point, you know, the, the heat generated in that, in, in that um, plasma and given off in the, in the reaction as a whole is something that you could use, also use for industrial purposes. And, and, and obviously that's something that I think a lot of folks are looking at as well. So when folks are looking at fusion in the future of it, th- I know this is way down the road because we don't have any commercial fusion reactors and you have to walk before you run. But looking down the road, do you say, see the same sort of diversity in fusion reactors that you have with fission reactors, different sizes, uh, different appli- we talked about different applications, but different um, different methods. So we so you mentioned that there are different ways to produce the fusion reaction. Right. Is the thought 
that um, one of those will be successful, will become the VHS, and the other one will become Betamax and, and be thrown on the dustbin of history? Or are these two different technologies that will grow together and be applied in different um, you know, in, in different manners, depending on what the user ultimately needs? Um, I, I think I, I, that's a hard question to answer, right? Because I think as you're making some comparisons between fission and fusion, I think on, on the fission side of the house, we do have more experience with some of the technologies that are being proposed. So in, in the case of the smaller light water reactors, we've got a long base of you know decades and decades of experience. With molten salt reactors, we have work that was done by the Department of Energy and its predecessor, the Atomic Energy Commission. Same thing with fast reactors, same thing with, with high-temperature gas reactors, albeit they were not widely deployed on, on a commercial basis. So, so there is some understanding there. In the, in the fusion side of the house, I think there is a wide number of different technologies that are being developed with the potential to deploy those as well. I mean, literally, if you look at it, there's a chart that, that, that was put together and, and we've used at various FIA meetings. You know, there are several dozen different methodologies that are being used to try to, to, try to, to crack that, that code. Um, there's a lot of attention that has been given to a couple of facilities, um, one being uh, the Eater facility in France. It's an international group of countries, including the United States, that have put in massive amounts of government funding uh, to try to create a, a, a very large uh, fusion facility. That is 1990s technology. Um, ultimately, uh, it, 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 it will be built. Hopefully, it will be successful. But that's not really the direction that the commercial fusion industry is going. What they're looking for are is, is really, to your point, you know, how do you apply these in a commercial way for fit purpose? And so the size of those will be much, much smaller, more attuned to the needs of the energy marketplace, either for the purposes of things like server farms or alternatively larger, genera larger generating facilities. Uh, they're not going to be, you know, 1,000 megawatt equivalent units typically to, to what you might have at a, at, a, at a large current nuclear power plant, um, but they're going to be sized in such a way where once you've come up with that, once, once you have deployed it in a way that's going to be successful and, and develop the technology where it will be, uh, you can replicate that in a factory-like setting and really really start to pump them out in, in large measure. Then we'll see how, we'll see how, all of that, how all of that fits. I think the, the analogy I would make um, would be more along the lines of the auto industry, where mm -hmm. we're going to see different types of vehicles that have different attributes, and that will change over time. Where the marketplace ultimately goes, you know, a little hard to say right now. It's like electric vehicles. A lot of people, you know, think we're going to have 100% electric vehicles in, in 10 years. I'm not necessarily on that on that particular uh, bandwidth. I think the market will help decide that, and, and it's no different than, than fusion fission. You mentioned some of the high-profile things we've seen in the news lately. Um, perhaps the, the most high-profile one is the Lawrence Livermore ni uh, National Ignition Facility um, yeah, I should have mentioned uh, that. Uh, experiments. Yep. Where they frame it as finally producing more energy out of the fusion experiment than what was put in. I have a question about that, but I wanted to ask you for sort of what are your thoughts on that? Were major milestones overcome? Are those milestones, one of the things I think people often don't recognize is the role that fusion and NIF in particular plays in our national security apparatus, and it's not necessarily a, if, if, if commercially viable technology comes out of that, that's great, but really what we're, that, that really is a national security, or a, a national security is a big part of that. So just what are your thoughts on that? What are, about the milestone? Is it as, as significant as people think, as the media portrays it? Because I will say for myself, maybe significant, but every few years we get a big news media report about fusion that it's around the corner and another milestone was met. So where, well, let me, let what me, should I think about uh, it? For your listeners, I'd, I'd probably take a step back first and sort of explain. You know, the Na National Ignition Facility is, is a massive uh, facility in, in California. It was paid for at, at large government expense. 
principally because we made a decision back uh, in the 1990s under under President George Herbert Walker Bush that we would no longer do atomic weapon weapons testing. Right. right? We used to do that work uh, at Nevada test site. We ended that. We needed some way to be able to ensure the vol- the validity of our stockpile of nuclear weapons, and that if called upon to be used, that, that they were going to be ready and available. And so the Department of Energy had to develop different methodologies to replicate and understand how how those weapons and technologies would work in the absence of those tests. And the National Ignition Facility, in some measure, um, is intended to provide a capability for analysis uh, of, of, of part of that uh, and, and replicating and understanding what happens in the context of, of a nuclear weapons blast. Having said that, the work that has been accomplished and is continuing to be accomplished there is noteworthy. Um, the tests, and they've had a couple that they've announced where they have gotten beyond the point where they're they're getting more energy than they're putting in. There are some caveats to that, but it, it is it is a meaningful achievement. Um, I think it does demonstrate that that particular form of, of in, uh, internal fusion, laser-based fusion, um, does have some uh, some great potential to it. There are several companies out there in the private sector who are attempting to develop commercial fusion using similar, you know, basically using a lot of the the, the data and and, uh, uh, technologies that were derived out of Lawrence Livermore to move those forward. And I think that's that's positive. On that issue, on uh, the private companies building on what has been developed in government labs, how does that transition take place? How does a private company reach in and um, get access to that technology so that they can then commercialize it and make it their own moving forward? Like, how does IP work? How do you pay for it? Like, what's that look like? Well, sometimes, um, and, and I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I always put a caveat, right? I'm not an IP attorney, so I'm not the best explaining that one either. But what, what I would say is um, fusion is being developed in, in several methods. Um, in, in one case, you have individuals who previously worked at some of those facilities, uh, National Ignition Facility, um, the ITER program, there's something called the JET program, uh, which is a, a fusion design in the UK. Some of those individuals have worked in those particular government-funded laboratories and have left and developed their own technologies mm-hmm. based on uh, based on the work that they did and, and the analysis and, and their own their own intellectual property that they've developed. Um, others have been developed out of uh, a variety of universities. Um, you know, one example is is uh, Commonwealth Fusion um, up in Massachusetts. That was an MIT derived program. Uh, they have a, a major initiative underway at a, at a former military base in, in Massachusetts for a tokamak style. Uh, fusion design. So, so I think some of it comes out of the government. Some of it comes uh, out of individuals who worked for the government. Others have come out of uh, private uh, research institutions and universities. I want to come back to that issue because I, one of the issues uh, that most interests me in, with energy in general is the role of government versus private sector. And when does one start crowding out the other? When does one start influencing capital flows to a negative, uh, in a negative way? But I want to put that aside because I want to come to this uh, uh, the, the issue I want to bring up here first. With any energy, any new energy source, there are questions about um, cost and safety. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where cost and cost and safety are with fusion now, and sort of how you and how people in industry believe it will evolve in the not so distant future, in the in the in the foreseeable future. Well, we'll let me let, let me let me answer that in, in the order that you gave it, which is cost and safety. And I think in the in the cost part of it also goes back to that that government private interaction. You know, again, and we, we we have and probably make some more comparisons with with fish in, in in this conversation today. But I think the fusion, the commercial fusion industry, while it has tapped into significant research undertaking by the government in the past, I think on a going forward basis, there, there's a real opportunity for, for having significant private investment in those corporations. And if you look at the, the amount of private capital 
um, I think the latest numbers are somewhere between five and seven billion dollars in the last few years that have been invested in various of these fusion technologies. Um, the the role of government, while it will still be there, is probably not quite as intrinsic as it is to, to fission. Um, some of that is a function of of the technologies themselves. I mean, in the case of of fission. Ultimately, you do have the creation of high-level waste to use nuclear fuel that is a responsibility of the government to take care of. With a fusion uh, device, there is no mandatory government role, at least as it relates to waste issues. Now, the, 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 I, I should caveat that. Obviously, the government has a role in regulating the safety that those, that when those facilities are ultimately decommissioned and taken to a low-level waste disposal site. But... They're not, you know, those fusion developers are not giving anything back to the government in terms of that the equivalent of, of that high-level waste used nuclear fuel. So there, there is a, there is a, uh, there is a, a difference there, and I think that that um, issue does provide an overlay to the fission industry, right? The nuclear reactors we have right now, and the interactions that they have to have with the government. I think, I think also um, the history of interactions and involvement by the U.S. government in the development of fission-based programs is just simply uh, broader and and deeper. You have Oak Ridge National Lab, which has a major mission in that area, Idaho National Lab, which is the, you know, others might argue differently, but I would say is the leading uh, lab for the U.S. civilian nuclear industry. They have massive programs that they've had over decades that have really fed into that. The scope of that in terms of the fusion industry simply isn't, I, I don't think, I, w- I would argue it's not of, of, of an equivalence. Now, the, the other issue is, is safety. I think folks, um, I mean, I, I started this, and, and again, we'll talk about fission first. I started it from a standpoint of a former nuclear regulator, and I do believe nuclear power as we operate it today is safe. But there are a lot of things you have to pay careful attention to. Fission-based reactors can, if in an accident condition, cause the release of large uh, volumes of radioactive material. So you really have to be careful in that regard. You also have, as we talked about, the long-lived radioactive material, the used fuel, that ultimately you have to disposition, albeit we can do so safely, and that, that will be our conversation for a later <laughs> day. On the fusion side of the house, you don't have those same issues. When you look at it from a safety and risk standpoint, um, the, the things you have to be concerned with are, are not as, as great. So uh, I would say that a couple of things um, come to mind. First, you do have the creation of a lot of neutrons. So for the workers who are working there, there has to be appropriate shielding. That also has to be appropriate for actually containing the, uh, containing the plasma. So you, you, you had to build safety into those, those fusion-based designs. The second one is that as part of that um, plasma and as, the, as you have that within the, the uh, confinement, there is, as a result of, the, of that activity, uh, the creation of, of dust particles. That basically that very uh, high temperature plasma is ultimately causing some erosion of that confinement. Uh, that dust material is radioactive and it does have to be appropriately managed um, in the event that there's any kind of an issue. But you, but with fusion, you, you can't have the kind of accident that we have conceptualized or have seen, I should say, with, with, uh, with fission-based plants. Finally, uh, the, the, many of the designs, not all, um, utilize tritium, which is, which is a gas. Uh, tritium gas um, is something that um, is effectively man-made. Uh, much of it that we're going to use in the U.S. comes from nuclear power plants in Canada, which is a, which use a different uh, form of of, of, uh, of nuclear power energy. But they they do create tritium. That tritium can be captured. That tritium can be brought down and, and serve as basically the fuel source for that plasma in a in a fusion based design. You got to carefully manage it. It does tritium is a is a gas which can. Uh, if not appropriately contained, can get into the water and onto the ground, and you got to be careful with, with how to clean it up. But it is something we know how to manage and something we have managed, uh, and the Canadians have managed quite effectively. So there are some real differences there. Uh, um, the, the one thing I, I would say, and we really haven't gotten into this, but I think it's an important point to make, 
you know, there are a lot of designs that are are, are going to be out there for for fusion. Um, I'm, you know, I'm hope all, I hope all of them are wildly successful. Um, this is really hard stuff, so not every technology is going to prove to be um, valuable, but uh, or or is not going to prove to be uh, able to actually meet that goal of providing that fusion reaction that is is going to be economically useful for energy production. Uh, I hope a lot of them do. Uh, I think a number of them will, and we'll see where it goes. So I think would it be fair to say, from a cost standpoint, you and folks in the fusion industry anticipate they will be affordable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be investing their money into it, ultimately, that the expectation is fusion will be competitive with other sources of of energy. Yes. We've talked a lot today about, you you characterize it as two sides of the house, of almost comparing fusion and fission. And I think that that just happens because people are more familiar with nuclear reactors and fusion sounds like it and they both happen in reactors. I'm curious if you think that those comparisons aren't really fair. Like it seems to me that the technologies are different enough that maybe we need to think about them more differently than what we do. Well, we do. And, 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 well, and, and you've put your finger precisely on what's been keeping me occupied for the last three years. So the Fusion Industry Association brought me on board and Pillsbury on board to help them navigate how are they going to deal with the regulation of these facilities. That's right where I was going with right. that. <laughs> and, and um, you know, without giving people too much detail, the current crop of nuclear reactors has a very strong r- regulatory overlay by the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And oh, by the way, for a civilian nuclear fission reactor, the NRC is the sole regulator. States cannot regulate those plants. Those are regulated solely by the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now, do you think that's appropriate? Um, I, I do. I do. Okay. Um, and that's that That would be a whole other conversation of, of why I believe that, but I do think that's the right outcome. I, I think it's, it is different, and it will be different with fusion. We went through a process to, to essentially convince the staff and the commissioners of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission that fusion should be treated differently and should not receive that same heavy hand of regulatory requirements that are put on operating nuclear reactors. Now, currently, um, with the exception of the two new, uh, the Vogel Units 3 and 4, which are operated by Southern Company, all of the current fleet of nuclear reactors operate under uh, what's called 10 Code of Federal Regulations Part 50. And basically, this is a regulatory structure that dates back to the 1960s. It requires for a facility to come in for a construction license, get that from the NRC, build it, come in for a second operating license, get that, then you can operate the reactor. And then you have hopefully, whole, hopefully. And then <laughs> another whole, different conversation. Yeah, another different conversation. <laughs> and, and then, you know, then a whole series of ongoing requirements for inspection and, and whatnot. Uh, it's a, it is a, it is a very detailed and prescriptive regulatory process. In some ways appropriate, in some ways probably a little bit overboard for the current fleet of reactors. Because fusion devices do not have um, the same level of, nearly the same level of risk, right? Either Can I interrupt oh, real quick? sure. I just, I want to finish because I, I don't want to leave people hanging. Current, you said other than Vogel 3 and 4, they operate under Part oh, thank 50. You. Yeah. So can you just real quick, yeah, I'm, Part I'm, 52. I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. I'm sorry. I, le- I left that thought on the table. So the, the new units, Vogel 3 and 4, uh, those are Westinghouse AP1000 reactors that are owned and operated by Georgia Power, part of Southern Company. Those were um, built in a, in, un, under a new regulatory regime that the, well, new. We, we crafted that in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, it's really a one-step licensing process. Southern Company came in. They sought a, uh, a single application to build and operate that reactor. They used a certified design, the AP1000. They used a pre-approved site. They went through one hearing process, they got the, uh, the approval, and then they just had a series of, of inspections and tests that they had to meet at the end in order to be able to operate. That actually worked pretty well. Uh, Part 52 um, worked in some ways better than I think some folks thought. Uh, there was, you know, if I had to 
turn the clock back. Uh, you know, I might have made some other changes to it, but mm-hmm. we'll leave that one aside. Either way, that level of intrusiveness was not required. And so we went to the NRC as a, as a group and on behalf of, of the uh, Fusion Industry Association and said, we believe that the framework under Part 30, which is used to regulate particle accelerators, was a more appropriate framework. It's, it's a much simpler um, process. It does not require nearly the prescriptive level of regulation. And from a risk standpoint, was much more appropriate given the risk, so the significantly reduced risk of fusion uh, when compared to fission. And, and um, ultimately, uh, the NRC, the commissioners, uh, agreed with that approach and issued a direction to staff earlier this year directing them to put together a regulatory framework for fusion that would go down that particular road. Now, what is noteworthy, and I said before, fission reactors are solely regulated by the NRC. There is a program called the Agreement State Program, and it dates to the 1950s, where states can apply to step into the shoes of the NRC for non-reactor issues, so medical isotopes, industrial uses of isotopes. Those are things that the states can regulate. 37 of the 50 states do have those programs, and so I think for many of the fusion devices that we're going to see going forward, many of those will, will likely be regulated at, at a state level. I'm going to take us off track just for a second because um, I'm interested in your view on this. And I may have asked you this before. I'm going to ask you again right now. Do you have any thoughts on or do you think it's just a non-starter? There's a lot of talk about fission regulatory reform, giving states more responsibility for that. This is, uh, you know, there are there are several states, Vermont previously, and I think I think Illinois do have sort of shadow regulators for the NRC. So they will have folks who will be at certain of the sites, and they will also conduct inspections, but they don't they don't have the force of of law. I am not convinced that having a separate state regulatory regime would be helpful. I think there is a value in having a singular authority in charge of nuclear power plants. I, you know, if, you know, if uh, more of the states were sort of, I, I live full-time down in North Carolina, and we have, you know, Duke runs a great nuclear program. The, uh, that fleet is operating very well. It's about, I don't know, 30, 35% of the total power for the state. If if I was confident that you could come up with a regulatory regime that would be appropriate and 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 uh, accommodating of of continued operation of nuclear power, I'd feel more comfortable about mm-hmm. it. Coming from New Hampshire and being next door to Vermont, <laughs> right? right I, I have a different view of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't want to see a, a, you know a Bernie Sanders clone being in charge of of overseeing nuclear reactors, and and frankly. Um, you know, and I, I say this with some some New Hampshire and Vermont have a, have a have a love hate relationship, and and you know Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant was a perfectly good nuclear power plant that the anti nuclear folks forced to shut down. And it's unfortunate. We really there's a number of plants that shut down in the last uh, ten years that really shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to get us off track. I just wanted to, to throw <laughs> that out there um, real quick. Let me ask you this: We've talked a lot about safety being different with fusion for a number of reasons. One of the, I'm going to ask this question in as non-judgmental a way as I can, even though I have thoughts on it. One of the pieces, one of the primary pieces of, of nuclear policy for fission is Price Anderson, which if people don't know, that's a federal program um, that uh, provides liability insurance for fission reactors. Yep. And though the nuclear industry pays into that some anyway it's a federal program that does that yep. would a a fusion reactor fall under price anderson or how is that aspect of it handled it, or is it, there it an not, aspect uh, under under well because it would be regulated under part 30 it would not apply um the other thing that wouldn't apply which is currently law is there is a prohibition on um foreign ownership of of nuclear power plants so if you know, someone from England, you know, want to come and buy a nuclear power plant, they couldn't own more than 49.9%. And and there was um, several transactions that that, uh, that occurred where they did that. Um, there 
is an opportunity, has been an opportunity for foreign investment in, in U.S. Mm-hmm. nuclear power that has been precluded from that, in my view, dated yeah. law from, from the early days of the Atomic Energy Act when the U.S. was the only one that sort of knew the, the, the crown jewels. Um, fusion will be, will be different. It will yeah. not be subject to that same limitation. And so if there were foreign investment in, in a fusion facility, that would be allowed. So there are, there are some bells and whistles on, that are imposed on the current nuclear fleet that would not be imposed on fusion yeah. devices. And we should say, or I will say on that, um, I agree with you completely on the prohibition the antiquated policy we have that prohibits foreign investment in domestic nuclear power. Um, but whenever we talk about that, critics will say, oh, you want North Korea coming in here or China coming in here and buying nuclear plants? That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about friendly countries like Great Britain, China. Sorry, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> like Great Britain, France, um, Japan. In fact, if that weren't in place, I would argue we would probably have a few more new reactors coming online right now because a number of the um, new reactor plans in the mid 2000s would have conti- probably would have continued forward if um, France specifically had been able to move forward with what they would like to have done. Oh, I, I think there was. I, I think there was and remains substantial appetite to invest in the United States. Yeah, and I think um, particularly from um, certain portions of Europe. Um, Japan, I think, is is a, another good example where, the, you know, we we have our problems as Americans, but we live in a stable country that has a strong pro business economic environment for the most part, and people see that. and And I think uh, I can tell you there are foreign utilities that would be very anxious to have the opportunity to invest in in uh, in nuclear energy. Just look at the sheer amount of investment uh, by foreign utilities in renewables. I mean, there's a, a there's a massive amount of foreign in investment there, and it obviously hasn't <laughs> hasn't detoured the ability to deploy those assets at all. And I just have to respond to that with what I'm about to say. Yes, they are investing because there are billions and billions and well, billions of guaranteed federal dollars to subsidize it and mandates that force people to buy. I would invest in that too if, if I was if I was someone. So. Uh, agree, In fair, agree. I, you know, I just have to, I, you know, it is Jack's, it is the, the power hour at the Heritage Foundation that I host. So I had to put that caveat. Absolutely. In no, I, I get it. I get it. I have a reputation to uphold here. Before we're, we're getting close to the end of the hour, I want to get a little, I want to just ask a few more specific questions about regulation. From your perspective, is the regulatory structure good now? Like, is, is that fight over or does still more work to, need to be done? Sort of where do things stand and what are... Maybe some uh, op- uh, potential obstacles or things that we need to make sure do not happen. Are there any of those things out there that those of us who want fusion to be successful, or at least have a chance to be successful, that we need to look out for? Well, I think there. Are, I think there are a, a couple of things I want to say there. First off, I mean the reason the the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the commissioners, bought into what we proposed is adopting Part Thirty was because the risks associated with these devices are significantly less when compared to typical fission nuclear reactors. So that, that's number one. Number two, the action that was undertaken recently by the commissioners was to instruct the staff to develop a targeted rule for fusion utilizing the Part 30 framework and effectively making some minor changes to accommodate some definitional differences. The devil is always in the details. And so the next step in the process is the NRC staff is going into their, you know, quiet cube and developing the proposed rule after which they will they will issue that and there'll be an opportunity for public comment. Is there is there a potential that the NRC staff could overstep what the commission expected and have something that is more intrusive than what we want? That that possibly is is there. I hope not. I, I, I trust they won't do that. I think they got a clear message from the commission. But you know, until it's done, it, it, you know, you, you always have that risk. And so we'll, we'll be continuing to monitor uh, the actions of the NRC staff and the commissioners. Uh, there will be an opportunity to comment on that in, in, a, in a proposed rule, and, and we'll, be, we'll be there um, all the way to the end until we get a final rule that makes sense, and we'll be there monitoring the implementation of that rule as it relates to our members. Excellent. Now, one of my 
favorite misreadings of history is a quote that Louis Strauss, former Atomic Energy Commission chair, made in 1954 that many people have used to denigrate nuclear power when he said the words, this will be too cheap to meter. Now, what I like to point out to folks, and this is where it's a misreading, evidently, he wasn't talking about fission energy at all. He was talking about fusion energy. So we have a chance for old Louie to end up being right after all. Now, I'm not saying fusion is going to be too cheap to meter, but does he have a chance of being more right when it's all said and done than what he's been accused of? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I think there's there, there's great great potential out there to deploy these devices at scale and potentially dr- provide dramatic ap- amounts of clean energy at a very reasonable price. The initial cost, like anything else, is going to be higher. But as you put that in a factory environment, um, there's certainly the potential for that to be done so in a way that is very, very cost efficient. We'll see. The one thing I, I, I would want to leave on the, I, I don't want to leave off the table, um, is important. It's not just about terrestrial applications. We, we look a lot these days at SpaceX and others oh, yeah. who origin that want to, want to go to deep um, uh, ranges of space. We know that nuclear energy, n- nuclear-based fission reactors are being developed in order to be able to provide the fuel to do those long-duration flights in a, in a much shorter period of time. So you get a lot more th- thrust in, in that device. Fusion is, is the next step. In, in that effort, if successful in deployment, it could dramatically transform uh, interspace travel. And that that's going to be a really exciting one to watch over the next 20 years. And would it also not have utility on the moon? I know they're looking for water on the moon right now. And if you have water, then do you, combi- if you can combine that with fission to produce what you need to do fusion, is that is that a chain that is reasonable? Um, yeah, I, I think that there will, there are, there is a real potential for the use of a variety of fission and fusion technologies on the moon and el- elsewhere in deeper space. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. So that's where that all, you know, one of the things that I often talk about when people will say to me, what's the future of energy or what, what, what do you think is going to be the future? What's the future energy fuel of choice? And I'm like, probably coal <laughs> because or, or what problem are you trying to solve? Because right now, we have a we we are an energy abundant society. To any extent, there's energy scarcity. I would argue it's because of bad government policy. Almost always, it's that. But what we see time and again, historically, is that our what we choose to fuel our energy needs changes all the time, and. Whenever you start talking about those kinds of applications, you can really start seeing where what we have in the world today isn't appropriate for those really futuristic and not maybe so distant future applications in in space, space travel. Not that I'm saying fusion is only appropriate for that, but it's those sorts of um, evolutions that I think really drive the technology forward. And then you can start spinning these off into things that are appropriate here or make sense here on Earth right now. And so it's the combination of that vision and the economic utility that something has that allows technology to move forward. Well, well there's no question, and, and we've seen time and time again, that, that the development of space travel over the last 60-plus years has had very beneficial spinoffs in terms of civilian applications of technology, right? Computers, all kinds of different things. GPS, GPS. Uh, but the the one thing I think it's important, and, and this gets us back to sort of the terrestrial applications. You know, how do you capture energy to power what we want to accomplish? Whether it is heat, whether it is electricity, or otherwise, having energy sources, and and the two that we've been talking about today are dense energy supplies. You can right. get a lot of energy in a very compact area. Um, that's a real defining difference. And as we go into, you know, intergalactic travel, you know, 
packing up a whole bunch of solar panels to do that is not going to be a practical thing right. to do. And God knows the wind doesn't blow uh, appropriately on the moon. So, you know, we, we, we've got to have the means to provide sources of heat and power that are going to give us the opportunity to do those kind of amazing things in the future. Now, you did see that American flag on the with the moon landing that looked like it was blowing in the winter. Are you saying that there was some kind of conspiracy? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Obviously, we we all know that they had a thing holding it up. No we just conspiracy theories to the here. Dark web show there. Right, exactly. Um, Jeff, thanks so much. This was great. Do you have like social media that you use or anything else that you want to where people can reach you or that you want to draw attention to? Yeah, no, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm I'm very active on on LinkedIn. I have to admit, um, I'm I don't do that much on. Uh, X, formerly known as, as Twitter. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, we, we are, we're pretty active on social media in that regard. Very good. Um, thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, let your friends, family, and colleagues know and tell them to check us out and email us. Again, that email is thepowerhour at heritage.org, thepowerhour at heritage.org. And remember, give me your questions about global warming. I will ask them next time around. Jeff, John, any final words? My final thought, because of looking at the future of energy and space travel, should we shelve the plans for a coal-powered rocket? No. That will be how I specifically travel to space. (laughs) There we go. If it's just me alone, I'm getting on that coal-powered rocket, and I'm getting out of here. All right. We'll keep keep working on that. A coal-powered rocket. Wow. Good luck with that one. I hope you've got more success with that than the microwave. (laughs) You know what? I'll just sit in my cylindrically-shaped vehicle and burn coal and get to wherever it takes me. Seriously, Jack, this has been terrific, and uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. I had a op- great opportunity to talk about two technologies that I, I have uh, uh, really my lifetime's work at this point, so it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate it. You were awesome. A great guest, I think informative. Hopefully, we were entertaining. So there you go, folks. Remember, shoot us an email. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jeff Merrifield. And most of all, Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.